probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from harperwharris.com, and joining me again today is... Ryan Haupt from sciencesortof.com and the Science Sort of Podcast. Awesome. Thanks for coming back, Ryan. Happy to be here. Cool. So today we are talking about Minute 42 of The Thing, which begins with Nall skating into the rec room and, and asking about whose dirty drawers are in the, in the kitchen trash can, uh, and ends a minute later with um, the computer simulation showing, uh, showing some kind of animated cell assimilating another animated cell. So today, uh, the beginning of this minute starts with, uh, with Nall skating in, which, as uh, we mentioned yesterday, makes it so they're all 12 of the characters. The entire cast of the movie is all in this one, this one uh, scene together. So uh, Nalls comes in and complains about uh, somebody having thrown their dirty underwear in the kitchen trash can, which is a pretty um, – it's an interesting clue that obviously plays in later in the movie and is the only way that underwear becomes a very important plot point in this uh, in this science fiction movie. <laughs> yeah, so I actually didn't remember the significance of the underwear, so I wasn't sure if that was foreshadowing something that was coming up or it was referencing something we should have already known about. Yeah, it's it is that's kind of a good question because the significance of it, I guess, is not really shown until later when they realize uh, McCready says later that uh, when he's talking to his tape recorder that he thinks that when the thing takes you over, it shreds through your clothes. Mm-hmm. So, but interesting enough, there's an earlier scene, um, much earlier in the movie, it was when they're doing the autopsy of the the Norwegian that got shot and the the double face thing that they got from the Norwegian camp. They don't say anything about it, but Fuchs is looking at and and weirdly enough, he's smelling <laughs> this this torn underwear. So it's almost like. I don't know if it may be one of those things where, again, you know, there were a lot of scenes that were kind of moved around in the editing in the editing room um, from where they are in the script. That might be one of those kind of things. But um, it seems like they're kind of hinting at that being significant even that early in the movie. Uh, this is the first time anybody talks about it. OK, yeah, yeah, that's that's good to know. But, yeah, it, it is kind of interesting because they do very they focus on it. It seems almost like kind of a, a funny line if you don't really know what's going on, like. Like Knowles just is not interested in this discussion of intelligent life in the universe. <laughs> he just comes in and, and throws dirty underwear on the pinball machine. But yeah, obviously they they put a John Carpenter puts a lot of emphasis on it, and McCready seems to be interested in it too. And in, in some way, the way he kind of grabs it and starts looking at it. So you know, it's one of those things where maybe he's starting to get an idea. But knowing what happens later in the movie, this obviously insinuates that somebody at the camp has definitely been assimilated by by the thing. So here's my question. Yeah. Is the thing evil or is it just trying to survive in a hostile environment? That's I know we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but. No, that's an excellent question. That's something something I've talked about with a few people because I think it's a really interesting idea. There's actually a short story out there. I haven't had a chance to read it, but somebody wrote a short story from the thing's perspective about how it is just trying to survive. I think, yeah, I think this movie from the thing's perspective. Have you seen Green Room that came out like a year or yeah. two ago? 
I think the thing's perspective would look a lot like Green Room. Yeah. It gets taken to a very remote place. It doesn't really know anybody. <laughs> it's freaking out. It seems like these uh, beings are trying to attack it. I mean, they're, the opening shot is they're, they're shooting at it, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely has good reason to fear humans. And to, yeah, and, and you know, from its perspective, it's probably just trying to survive. And I guess the, the question really is whether it's doing all it has to do to survive or whether it's being overly aggressive and taking over people that it doesn't need to or whether or whether that's just part of its kind of you know natural programming well might i mean it might be part of its natural programming but it's in an unnatural place for it true and so its response might seem over the top but maybe it's that's because it doesn't know how to actually you know if it's a parasite in its normal environment you know we live in a world where there are lots of parasites and they obviously have detrimental effects but by and large life has figured out how to work with parasites as part of that equation mm-hmm. but maybe if you know it's it's like any invasive species it gets in a situation where there are no checks and balances against its abilities and its powers and so it seems like it's going overboard when really it's just operating how it would normally operate in an environment that's not built to contain it right and well and the other thing too is you know in classic monster movie fashion you know, even if it's just trying to survive, it looks horrifying to human eyes. And it just so happens that when the thing, uh, you know, makes its move and transforms or assimilates, it is like bloody and looks like human guts and all this, you know, it's something that, you know, to human eyes, it could could not possibly be, you know, an innocent creature because it's so nasty and and evil looking. (laughs) Right. I definitely think that this is probably my favorite horror movie that plays on the whole idea of body horror. Yeah. I don't think any other movie, because most of the time, body horror is something I can't watch and enjoy in any way because it just freaks me out too much. Mm-hmm. But this is the one movie where I think it's done in a way where it looks really interesting and horrifying, but isn't so disgusting or uh, upsetting that I can't actually get through the scenes. Well, and the other interesting thing that goes into that, too, is that a lot of the body horror of this isn't really in the the gory stuff. It's in the fact that you know, depending on how you believe the thing works and, and whether you can be aware that you're a thing or still be conscious within the assimilation or whatever, it looks just like a human body. But, it, you know, from your perspective, if you were taken over, you may be, you know, powerless to control your own body. Like, and, and that's kind of the at the seat of what body horror is in general. It's just your body is turning against you in some way. Right, right. So, yeah, but I, I think my perspective, having revisited this film a couple of times, is more along the lines of, the thing is is more T-Rex stuck in Jurassic Park, a place it did not ask to be in, an environment it is not evolved to deal with, and it's less Freddy Krueger. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And I do find it interesting that in, in this movie, unlike in the novella that it's based on and in the original movie, uh, Thing from Another World, those both of those have a strong focus on the scientists wanting to preserve it and and study it and save it and not kill it. In this movie, there's like no question. Like there's never outside of uh, there's there's one point actually at the very end of this week where where they talk about saving one of the dead bodies, but they never talk about wanting to save it. It's like as soon as it shows up and it's like attacking the dogs, are like all right, we gotta completely annihilate this thing and get it out of here. <laughs> I mean that, that feels. Correct for the 1980s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you can definitely feel the 80s influence there compared to the other, the other, the previous source material. But yeah, so in in this scene, they uh, after the dirty drawers scene, we get some more of them kind of talking about what happened, uh, their theories about it, and we get another great child's line where he says, uh, "How could this motherfucker wake up after thousands of years in the ice?" Which 
TV version there is one of my personal favorites of the uh, of the <laughs> the dubs, which is um, how's this monkey fella thing wake up, <laughs> which is uh, you know that's a pretty good one. That, that's up there with uh, with sandwich in Dumb and Dumber that uh, that we talked about in an earlier minute uh, overdubbing censored stuff, which is uh, pretty silly, but. I feel like monkey is one they go to a lot for mother because the mouth <laughs> movements yeah. look the same. You know, there's the classic uh, snakes on a plane uh-huh. where Sam Jackson says, I'm tired of these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. <laughs> Monday to Friday. <laughs> yep. No, it's a plane that only a runs one. Monday to Friday. No weekend <laughs> plane trips for this plane. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I thought uh, monkey fella was pretty good. Fella's a good one, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but um yeah, so again, Childs is being, you know, very skeptical about the whole thing. And Bennings is much more kind of uh, reserved to just asking how, how could it look like a dog. And that's when we get another, this is one of my favorite McCready lines because it feels so much like a very classic sci-fi. It feels like a like it's straight from a pulp novel, like it almost could have been from the novella when he's like, because it's different in us, see? Like the, <laughs> it feels very like... Uh, 1930s to me the way he says that i, I don't know yeah, why <laughs> no, it, it does it does stand out somehow i know yeah i agree with you i can't quite put my finger on how it stands out but it is it is a different sort of delivery and tone than i think the rest of the movie sometimes is yeah the way, way he says it came from uh maybe it's because it came from outer space like outer space is not a term that uh, you hear in movies now, you know, like you'd hear, you know, out in space or, or, you know, something like that. But outer space also feels to me almost like one of those classic sci-fi things. But yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, by the time uh, these episodes that we're recording come out, it'll, the eclipse will have come and gone, but yeah. we're recording these before the eclipse happens. And I heard somebody, or I saw one of my friends on Facebook say something like, I love outer space, but I just don't care about this eclipse. And I was like, thinking to myself, <laughs> It's the moon. Is that really outer space? Like it's right there. It's our it's our backyard, galactically speaking. <laughs> yeah, very true. How how outer? Where, where does outer begin? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that that his whole dialogue there always feels kind of pulpy and and classic sci fi to me. I agree. So I kind of love that. So then we get Blair looking at this uh, this photo of the Norwegians that I guess they. Um, it's interesting that we haven't seen that up until now. I guess they took it from the Norwegian camp. And they're they're finally starting. You don't to... think they would have just a photo of a random group of Norwegians <laughs> in the base already? They just have it up on the wall amongst the uh, the the VD uh, PSAs and the um, and the, uh, the <laughs> naked women posters they have hanging up. Yeah, some just some Norwegian dudes. Um, but yeah, this is one of the things that uh, Stuart Cohen, who's one of the producers on the movie, has this uh, incredible blog that he's put together called The Original Fan that has all kinds of his recollections from the production and pre-production and post-production. Um, and this is he has a post about, about this photo and who the people are in it. So um, that was kind of interesting to note the folks that are in there. So from left to right in that picture, uh, we get Dick Warlock, who is one of the stunt coordinators, and he's the one who shows up like... Like, he has as big a role in this movie as most of the main actors he shows up so often. Um, and at this point in the movie, we've already seen him as uh, the shadow on the wall when the dog uh, sneaks into the room. And he was one of the Norwegians in the VHS tape uh, that we, was in last week's minutes as well. So he shows up like seven or eight times in the movie in different little inter- funny cameos. That's cool. Yeah, so Dick Warlock, the stunt coordinator. Uh, Bill Lancaster is the ne- next to him. He, that's the screen screenwriter. Uh, Larry Franco, the associate producer, David Foster, one of the producers, Robert Brown, production manager, and Ray Stella, the camera operator. And Stuart Cohen said that he was actually supposed to be in the picture, but they decided he was too clean shaven to play a Norwegian. <laughs> so, so they brought in Bill Lancaster, who had a big bushy beard. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Just ha- I guess they just assume all Norwegians have giant beards. Seems a reasonable assumption when they're on the ice. <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, so Blair's just kind of, you know, contemplating that picture and I guess trying to understand what, what happened to them. And, you know, maybe this is another piece of foreshadowing that he's he's seeing that, you know, this is essentially what happened to them is probably what's going to happen to these guys at Outpost 31. And he's starting to understand that and, and see the, the stakes of, of what's happening. Let's see. I need flares, a parka, kerosene, dog food. Wow, who knew moving to an Antarctic base would be so expensive? And I haven't even started looking for roller skates and giant hats yet. It's a good thing I'm using Amazon so I can get the best price and get this stuff fast. And since I'm using thethingminute.com slash Amazon, a small portion of my purchase goes to help The Thing Minute to help support the podcast. Now if I can just get some of the listeners to use thethingminute.com slash Amazon, I might just be able to afford that flamethrower. So we get uh, this is where we get uh, a very dramatic uh, push in and, and fade out on Blair's face where they child's ask him if he believes any of this and then it, we do this fade out before he even says anything which is one of yeah, those I guess I should have saved my deep in thought comments on Wilford Brimley's acting <laughs> to, to this minute but yeah this one's the real deep in thought the like yeah just kind of blinking at child's um, which this is one of those kind of movie movie language things that always kind of not bugs me but I always think about it's like this is on the same line of like in movies when somebody rings the doorbell or, or the phone is ringing and it takes them like two minutes to go answer it. It's like one of those things we kind of suspend our belief about uh, in the movie universe. And, and in this, just the fact that he asks and, and uh, he asks Blair a question and Blair just kind of stares at him. <laughs> like that would, that would be really odd in real life. Like if this was, if this was really happening right after that fade, Childs would be like, what? Like, <laughs> what are you looking at me for? But the uh, thing I do like about this scene that we didn't talk about yesterday mm-hmm. is that so rarely in horror movies do you just get everyone in a room and say, okay, what do we know? <laughs> What's What do we think is going on? What are our potential problem solutions? You know, who's got what ideas? Like, I feel like a huge part of horror movies is lack of communication between principal yeah. characters. And so I like that they at least attempt to do it, even if not everyone is in the most communicative of moods. Credit where credit's due. Yeah, that's very true. That's an interesting point. And I've I've talked a lot about up to this point that um, it's it's interesting to me that this is a movie that we're 40 minutes into at this point and we're just now starting to understand what's happening. Like, um, because we are in basically the same perspective as the characters and that, you know, like say in most horror movies, it's a miscommunication. Like we as viewers know like, okay, we know that was Michael Myers that, that killed that person, not just, you know, an accident or something like that. You know, there's, there's, it's a central trope of horror that nobody believes the person who actually knows what's happening. And us as the viewers obviously know what's going on. But in this movie, we know exactly as much as the characters. And we're like a third of the way into the movie and just now starting to understand what the movie is actually about. So it's, um, I think it's probably pretty crucial that they have this scene because otherwise you're still kind of in the dark in a lot of ways. And um, it's it's interesting to note that we'll, we'll actually talk about it in just a minute because it's later on in this minute. There's scenes, John Carpenter added a lot to kind of clarify what was going on. He, he had a lot of, didn't have a lot of faith in the audience that they would really understand because I guess it is, you know, a pretty complicated idea considering that in most cases in this movie, in most of the scenes, the monsters are not very clear. And, and that's kind of the point. Um, so he, he felt like he had to add in a lot to make it, make audiences understand what was going on. And, and this scene, although this scene's in the original script, this is definitely one of those things too, that kind of, you know, starts to, um, I guess, synopsize what's going on and, and, and kind of clarify what's happening. Yeah. So moving on to, to the next part of this minute, we get the beginning of the, uh, the famous or infamous computer 
simulation here. So we only get the first part of it here. The next uh, tomorrow's minute has all computer simulation all the time. So uh, we'll save a little bit for that. But we do get here. Um, we don't really know what's happening or who's watching. We just see just the computer screen and we hear this, uh, this stopwatch ticking. And uh, we see these two blue cells floating around and one red cell floating around. And there's these little labels that go in and label them as dog cell. And uh, I think, uh, and it just points at our, what does it say? Alien cell? Cell intruder. Infection? Or yeah, yeah. Cell intruder. Yeah. So I'll say this is probably the thing that most dates this movie. There are, you know, I think this movie is pretty timeless in a lot of ways, but this is one of the things that like, yep, this is, this is definitely 1982. <laughs> well, the fact that he has to also run a stopwatch mm-hmm. next to his computer. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny too. Yeah. This extremely like, like impossibly sophisticated computer simulation that can somehow, you know, just figure this out. No problem on essentially the same computer that was, you know, struggling to run chess earlier. You can't run a stopwatch at the same time. Like you got to do that yourself. <laughs> right, right. The the computer animations. Uh, so obviously this is not a real computer program. It's just an animation that they projected onto this this computer screen. Uh, it was done by a guy named John Wash, who was um, a John Carpenter knew him from USC. They went to school together, um, and he went on to do lots of uh, visual effects work for uh, all kinds of movies. He's still doing stuff now. Um, he did animation. He did all the animations for Escape from New York, which is where Carpenter had kind of worked with them before. But um, he's done work for X Files and Smallville, Vampire Diaries, Blade Runner, Spaceballs, um, all kinds of uh, of interesting movies. He's got a huge IMDb credits page. But uh, yeah, I'll always I'll always think of him as the guy who made this um, this kind of ridiculous animated uh, computer simulation in this movie. <laughs> And this scene is one of those ones that was added in later. So, oh, was it? Oh, yep. interesting. So the computer simulation scene is a really interesting one because it uh, it's kind of controversial in that Carpenter added it in. It's not in the script at all. Um, he added it really late in the shooting because he was worried people wouldn't understand the stakes of what was happening. And which I guess I could see that. I, I could see people kind of understanding that it takes over people and stuff, but maybe not really making the connection that, you know, if it escapes from Antarctica, then, you know, it could could take over the planet. Like those planetary stakes are not really made clear up until this point. But uh, it does cause a lot of problems for the timeline because of the where it is in the movie. Uh, it, this, since this is before Blair's kind of freak out where he destroys the radio room and, and the helicopter, this it makes it seem like he could not possibly be a thing at this point. Um, because why would a thing be watching this simulation, trying to understand the thing, you know? And so it, it really kind of messes up when you think Blair might have gotten assimilated because obviously knowing how the movie ends, he does at some point, but uh, it's certainly not before now with this computer simulation here. Well, maybe the thing wants to get a sense of how many people there are on the mainland to go out and infect. Ah, I see. That's a good point. So maybe, maybe the thing is trying to learn it, what its opportunities are and get uh, a sense of the broader picture outside of this this base. I could see that. That's a good uh, good good point. Yeah, so maybe it's just kind of using this as its own research for for its uh its takeover of Earth. It, the the way the scene plays obviously has we'll, we'll see in the next minute plays with Blair being very kind of concerned about it. But yeah, if you're kind of kind of justified, you could definitely put it in in those terms. I think that that actually kind of makes some sense. But the other thing you can kind of talk about with that too is how depends on how you think the thing works because you know there are obvious places where the thing kind of just eats somebody and takes it over completely, but it also seems like there are times when it kind of 
infects like a virus or something and slowly takes over. So you could argue too, maybe that Blair has been infected, you know, maybe from his very careless autopsies that we've seen earlier where, you know, very, uh, very thin nylon gloves and blood up, up to his armpits, uh, you know, not really worried about any kind of infection there. You know, maybe he got infected uh, in a small part there and then it's, it hasn't fully taken over at this stage. So just one of those things you can kind of uh, theorize about. And, but th- yeah, this scene kind of adds a, throws a wrench into a lot of those theories, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. That's interesting. I would never have thought of that. I'm saving a lot of my modeling science talk for, for next or for tomorrow's minute. Yeah, that's probably a good idea because we have a whole minute of it. So yeah, we could probably go ahead and, uh, and, and wrap this one up. But the only thing I did mention or did want to mention is that in the TV version, this is where they add in one of the deleted scenes that Carpenter cut which is, uh, it's, it's in between these two scenes. And that's where Bennings sees somebody down by the dog kennel and is kind of investigating. And it's odd because that scene, as originally filmed, is where Bennings would have been killed. He gets, uh, he gets stabbed in the back, which is a very, like, kind of slasher movie thing that, you know, somebody, I think, brought to Carpenter's attention that that doesn't make any sense. Like, the thing wouldn't just go around killing people. Like, uh, that doesn't really play into its motives at all. But it's interesting in the TV version, they use all of that scene except for him getting killed. So it's just Bennings investigating and then nothing happens. <laughs> so I think it's another one of the cases where that the uh, that edit cuts out so much of the movie that they felt like they had to just add bits back in just to kind of, you know, add add filler because it's it was it's dramatically shorter than the the actual movie. But it adds absolutely nothing and really doesn't even make a lot of sense because it's just like him looking around and nothing ever happens of it. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was interesting. That's that's one of the only places you can see that that uh, that deleted scene. Cool. Yeah, no, yet another reason to avoid TV edits though. Yep. Yeah, this one is particularly bad. We'll uh we'll we'll talk about some other stuff uh that's ridiculous about it, but John Carpenter called it I think he called it an abomination or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. So I think that'll probably wrap up um, uh, minute 42. Anything else you wanted to mention before we move on? No, no, I covered what I wanted to cover. Cool. That'll wrap up this minute. But uh, don't forget that you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter at The Thing Minute. So you can join in the conversation there. Give us your theories about why Blair is looking at the computer simulation. And then, uh, of course, don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.